Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. I'm going to do something today that's a little different because this is Reformation Sunday, and I would like you to know some history. And it is fitting that at certain times of the year we remember those who have gone before us. And so this is sort of the memorial day of the church. This is a day when we remember the work of the reformers of men like Knox and Calvin and Luther, Melanchthon, Zwingli, Bucer, John Huss, Peter Waldo, back in the 11th century, um, or 12th, I think 12th. So I want to tell you, I want to begin the sermon this morning by telling you a story, okay? Back around halfway through the 15th century, a man assumed the papacy. His name was Nicholas V. And Nicholas V was the son of a, not a wealthy man. Um, Nicholas was put into positions of influence in the church at a very young age, and Nicholas was a man of great uh, 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 what would I say? I don't want to say he was a great scholar, but he was a great patron of scholarship, kind of like Herman Wells at Indiana University. You know, Herman may not have been the best scholar in the world, but he understood how to support scholarship and how to raise money for it. And that was Nicholas. And Nicholas specialized in putting together a library. And so back at that time, printing had recently been invented. You know, the Gutenberg Press, we actually have a Gutenberg Bible here, uh, printed on that press that the Lilly Library has... And so the Lilly... Eli Lilly and Company is sort of to learning and books and art and stuff in this state the way Nicholas was at his time. He poured money into supporting the arts, sculpture, um, libraries, and there was one thing that he was particularly concerned about, and that was the condition of St. Peter's Church in the Vatican in Rome. Right before Nicholas, there had been a division in the papacy, and there had been just horrible fighting. And there had been a couple popes at one time, and it was just completely scandalous. It was horrible, the condition of the papacy. And so Nicholas was the first in the healing of the papacy after this scandalous period. And Nicholas brought the papacy back to Rome. I'm not sure if he himself brought it back or it was brought back coterminous with his beginning as the Pope. But he was the one who came back to Rome, and he said, look, this place is a shambles. St. Peter's, the church, is in horrible condition. It had uh, some of the structure of Nero's amphitheater in it, and so it went back a thousand years, over a thousand years, and it was in disrepair. It was in horrible condition. And so Nicholas said, Nicholas V, he said, look, he said, we have to change these things. He began to build the library. Well, this was at the period of the Renaissance, and this was at the period when humanist scholars were in the ascendancy. And so the church went whole hog after the fads of the world. That's always what the church does. The church always follows the world in her fads. 
Well, the huge fad across all of the elite in Europe at that time was the fad of humanism, which is to say the fad of high art, high culture, and a restoration particularly of the ancient Greek philosophers and playwrights and Greece's sophistication and architecture and everything. And so there was a, a blooming, a blooming of all of the arts and the sciences and reading and books and the printing press had been developed. And so everybody's whole hog into this. Well, Nicholas was leading it. And Nicholas decided that the church of St. Peter's needed to be rebuilt. He felt that it was a scandal that there was such a broken down, disrepaired structure at the center of the papacy. And so he put together plans for the rebuilding of St. Peter's. And those plans were left. He also uh, paid to have about 5,000 and some uh, uh, carts filled with stones brought to the site so they were ready to be used. Some of them were coming from the Colosseum. All right? This is Rome. And he even began to build. He took some steps to build the choir, what was called the choir, okay, on the new St. Peter. So he had the plan. He started to build the choir. He laid up, you know, like Solomon and David. David left a bunch of material for the building of the temple by, by his son. This is what Nicholas did. Nicholas was not an extravagantly effeminate man, which basically most of the popes were at the time, right? Nicholas, there was some substance to the man, but the substance was all spent in the direction of humanism, the Renaissance, art literature, architecture, uh, music, sophistication, all right? On his deathbed, Lamb, a scholar who writes in Latin the history of the church at the end of the uh, 19th century, leaves behind this record of one of the things that Nicholas said on his deathbed, all right? He said this, only the learned, now when you, you know when it says the learned, only people with PhDs, that's the way you would understand it. Okay? Only people with, with the terminal degree, only the learned who have studied the origin and development of the authority of the Roman church can really understand its greatness. Okay, only people with the terminal degree, PhD, only people who really are educated and are smart and intellectual, only they can understand how great the Church of Rome is. All right? And then he says, thus, to create solid and stable convictions in the minds of the uncultured masses, okay, that's you, all right, there must be something that appeals to the eye. A popular faith that's sustained only on doctrines will never be anything but feeble and vacillating. Now, let me read that again. He says, you've got to have something for your eyes because a popular faith 
that is sustained only on doctrines will never be anything but feeble and blowing in the wind, vacillating. But if the authority of the Holy See, so this is the place that the Pope sits, if the authority of the papacy, if the authority of the Vatican, of the Pope, were visibly displayed in majestic buildings, imperishable memorials and witnesses seemingly planted by the hand of God himself. The belief would grow and strengthen like a tradition from one generation to another. And all the world would accept and receive it. Noble edifices combining taste and beauty with imposing proportions would immediately conduce to the exaltation of the chair of St. Peter. And this is Nicholas V. He comes up with a plan for St. Peter's. The plan is implemented starting on April 18, 1506. That is the first day that the new St. Peter's begins to be built. It is finished on November 18, 1626. 120 years. From the ground to the top of the cross, if you can picture St. Peter's, from the ground to the top of the cross is almost 500 feet high. It is the largest church in the world. It took 120 years to build it. How much did it cost? Well, we have a record of the cost, and it's 4,800,000 and some ducats. So what is the value of a ducat? Well, the value of a ducat is open to argument. It depends on whether you take the amount of gold that was in a ducat at the time, or whether you take how much that gold could purchase in terms of scholars, craftsmen, menial workers. So economists could go around and around on what it is. I didn't read anybody making a guess at it who had an education on the internet who came up with anything less than how much? Four billion dollars. And it's somewhere between four billion and forty billion. Depending, it was the guy that figured out the wages at the time that came up with, I think, the forty. Now think about this. You have Pope Nicholas V. You heard what he said on his deathbed. And now you have heard what came out of his dream, right? (laughs) And you go into St. Peter's today. I was looking at the tours. If you want to get in, how much you have to pay. And it's a lot more than getting into Westminster Abbey. Okay? I was at Westminster Abbey a few years ago when I had to speak over in Latvia at a conference of Lutherans. They asked me to come and defend the biblical doctrine of uh, 
male eldership, all right? And so I decided to go see Westminster Abbey. I always heard about it, and I, I happened to show up the weekend after they changed the policy and begun to charge to get into Westminster Abbey. And so there's a long line, there's a queue, you know, the Brits love queues, right? And Z's. And I waited and waited, and there was an older couple from America in front of me, and when they got up to the cage, the man behind the cage said to them, all right, it's going to be, I think it was $24, I think it was 24 pounds, I think it was, I, I forget what it was, but it wasn't just a trifling amount. And they looked at the man and they said, well, we don't have any money in pounds, but we have American dollars. Will you take American dollars? And he said, no. Will you take a credit card? No. Well, they'd waited forever. It was a sweet older couple. And, you know, I thought to myself, I should just pay for them. But it was, my recollection was either 24 pounds or $24, and that was a hill too high for me, you know, for some people that would never thank me in any meaningful way. <laughs> <laughs> And so they walked away. It was so sad. So I got up to the queue, and I said to the man, I gave him his money in pounds, and, and then I said to him, you know, you should have let them in. He said, excuse me? And I said, you should have let them in. He said, well, they didn't have money. And I said, this is a church of Jesus Christ. And if people don't have money to go in, you should let them in. What the funny part of it is that that's all that was said, and I went in, and I was looking at my orientation map, and all of a sudden there was this man about this high standing in front of me, and he was saying, excuse me. And I looked at him, I said, yes. And he said, excuse me, I am offended. And I thought all I had done was walked in a church and was looking at the brochure, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to believe I'm that offensive, you know, but I had, I had no clue what I had done, you know. And I said, really, why? And he said, because you said I should have let them in. Well, I realized then he'd shut down his queue. Walked out, walked into the church, found me, and was standing in front of me telling me he was offended. And this was something that I had no grid to understand, you know? And so I said to him, he kept saying, I'm offended. And I said, good, you should be offended. And you should have let them in. And that was the end of the conversation. So I was on a plane with a guy that went to Oxford who actually, uh, where's Lee? No, she's not there. Where are you, Lee? Actually, John knows this man. And I was talking to this man across the aisle, and he, he's in holographics, right? I found out he was in holographics. And I told him the story because I couldn't understand why this man told me he was offended and shut down his line to come and tell me that. And he said to me, he said, well, you know why he said that to you. And I said, no, why? And he said, because you're right. <laughs> Which cost him dearly to say that to me. Now, think about Rome. Here's St. Peter's. You heard the man that came up with the plans. Who was it that was one of the major builders? They had four major, five major ones. Who was one of them? Michelangelo. Okay? Michelangelo. And I think to get in, it's something like $25 a person. 
I could be wrong. I didn't, I didn't look that up. I mean, I looked it up, but I'm not sure that everybody has to pay that amount, but I know that's what I saw on a page. And one of the problems we have today is we have no ability to be scandalized anymore. We have Christians who watch Quentin Tarantino films. And how will they ever have the ability of hearing what I'm saying and be scandalized? And so today, the movies we've watched, the churches that we've been a part of, the elders who have been responsible for our care, the the men that preach to us, the older Titus II women that we've been around, have robbed us of our consciences. And so I talk to you about St. Peter's. I tell you why it was created. I tell you what the Pope says. I tell you how much it costs to get in there. And then you begin to think about the wealth in that place. If you've ever seen pictures of it or been in it, it's mind-boggling. Michelangelo? The Sistine Chapel? And then you think about how many of us honor Michelangelo and his art and the art of the Vatican. How many of us honor the music? How many of us honor the architecture? And then we come into a church on Reformation Sunday, and we act as if we appreciate Martin Luther. And listen, people, uh-uh. Uh-uh. You must see that as uh, Buchanan said in his book this week in our pastor's college on justification, he said justification, the whole system of indulgences was built on what? Do you remember the phrase, Scott? Sk. Sk. Where's Joe? Joel. Any of you remember the phrase? Scholastic, now you remember the next word, scheme or theory. Scholastic theory of what? See, I tell you. Yeah, yeah, merit. Yeah. A scholastic system of merit. And what does a scholastic system of merit do? A scholastic system of merit merchandises the salvation of souls. It commodifies eternal life. Okay? And you can't separate it from the music and the art, the buildings, the libraries, the learning of humanism and the Renaissance. And so if we who are Reformed today think, oh, you know... We've been pig ignorant, and now we're going to be educated. And we think, because our hearts are clean, that we can engage in education without ever being peeled off for Satan. That education is no threat to us, because after all, we're not Roman Catholics. This is foolish. 
You can't separate the Reformation from humanism, from the Renaissance, from scholasticism, from art, from culture, from libraries, from printing. And God bless them, the printing actually ended up being worse for them than it was for the truth. Because what happened was Wittenberg turned into a center of printing in the whole world. About a quarter of its economy during the time of Luther was dependent upon printing. And what were they printing? Well, they were printing all the literature of the Reformation. That's why I have hope with the Internet. Because what the Internet has done is it's busted up the monopoly on on publications that Rome had prior to the Gutenberg printing press. Do you understand this? So all of a sudden the printing press comes out and everybody has the ability of of writing pamphlets and having them distributed massively across, across Europe. And so don't go hopeless on the internet. Because the internet has destroyed the legacy publishers who had a monopoly on how the Protestant faith would be presented in the church. I grew up under that monopoly. And now any idiot can write, including Martin Luther. And he doesn't need the imprimatur of the Pope or his cardinals. It was a wonderful thing. Now, I've, 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 I've told you the story of Nicholas V, okay? I've told you that it took 120 years to build St. Peter's. I've told you when St. Peter's started to be built and when it ended. I've told you how much money was involved. Okay? Now, when did Martin Luther nail his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg? And why did he nail it when he did? Why did he write when he did? And why did he put it on the castle church of Wittenberg? Well, the castle church of Wittenberg was for the rich people. The people that were paying for the sustaining and creation of the University of Wittenberg, because that's what all the rich people wanted, was a university in their town at the time, those people went to the castle church. No commoners were allowed in the castle church, except one day a year. What day was that? That was All Souls. Saturday, yesterday, is All Souls. All right? That's the anniversary of him nailing it. Why did he nail it on Saturday? Well, because... The next day was the day when all the commoners could come into the rich man's church. And why did they want to come in the rich man's church? Any of you know that? I'm just curious, Andy, do you know? Oh, so, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. The reason, listen, the reason that they wanted to come in is that Frederick the Elector had in the castle attached to the church an unbelievably value collection of relics. You know, like the splinter from the cross, Peter's, you know, St. Peter's head. Um, I wasn't going to say that one, but since you forced me to, I said it. And just all this crud, you know, like, I don't know. I saw, you know, we saw some of them, and Brian took me there. If I remember correctly, the value of those relics was something around three million years of uh, plenary indulgences. Three million years 
was the value. It was an unbelievable, and you got good spiritual karma from viewing the relics. In other words, it was, a, it was the poor man's way, if you didn't have money for indulgences, that you could get rid of some of your bad karma, that you could enter into the scholastic system of merit. You got merit. And the whole Roman Catholic Church had put together this complicated system where you were able to partake of the church's merit, not just your personally, but the church's, by giving money. It started out with giving alms to the poor, but then they, they jiggered it. They rejiggered it so that it was giving money directly to the poor. I mean, to the church, <laughs> excuse me. And then they came up with a system where somebody responsible had to have oversight over that treasury of merit. And so they decided it was the Pope. So they put together a scheme whereby the Pope was the one that controlled it. He could delegate that control to other people. The Archbishop of Mainz was sent out to deal with the huge problems of debt at the time of Luther. He delegated to Tetzel the job of selling indulgences so that he could bring to the Pope. And so Martin Luther sent a copy of the 95 Theses to the Archbishop of Mainz. Because he's the one that the Pope had doing his dirty work, the Sabbath goyim, you know. And the Archbishop of Mainz told the preachers of the indulgence, the actual salesmen, to not tell the truth to the commoners about what they were actually purchasing. And so if you read through the 95 Theses, what you'll find again and again is that Luther says, the people should be taught. Nine times in a row, a thesis begins with those words, the people should be taught. Why? Well, because what the intellectuals knew was going on with the trade and indulgences and what the salesmen told the church was going on were two completely, entirely different things. And so Luther, again and again in the theses, he says, listen, the people think this, but, you know, honorable pope, you know, honorable cardinals, you know that's not true, and, and I know that it grieves you that that's what the commoners think. And it's all tongue-in-cheek, you know. You know that he's shaming them. Because, of course, they're happy for people to be misinformed about what they're buying. Are you with me? Now, I'm going to read a few of the theses. All right. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, of penitence. The entire life. In other words, you don't repent when you come to the Lord and then stop repenting the rest of your life, which is what we all wish we could do, <laughs> right? You know, don't you, anybody get tired of repentance? Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, number seven, God never remits guilt, never forgives guilt to anyone without at the same time making humbly submissive to the priest, his representative. Whoa, you never heard that one, did you? But that's absolutely true. God, when he's dealing with people, always has them go to the shepherd and ask the shepherd to assure them of their forgiveness. Shepherd doesn't have the ability to forgive, but the shepherd does have the obligation to comfort the sheep. And so when we're repentant, we need reassurance, you know? Okay, number 11. When canonical penalties were changed and made to apply to purgatory, surely it would seem that tares were, th were sown while the bishops were asleep. Remember how I told you that sometimes he shames the bishops and the leaders? 
Well, he's doing that here. Well, the people don't understand what they're doing, and so you're, you're, you're sowing weeds in the field, but apparently you bishops were asleep. Uh, no. You know, they weren't asleep. They knew what was going on, okay? Oh, my. Okay, next. Number 24. It must therefore be the case that the major part of the people are deceived by that indiscriminate and high-sounding promise of relief from penalty. The people are deceived, okay? Number 27, there is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of the purgatory immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. Which is exactly what Tetzel said, you know. Coin clinks in, soul springs free. That's how he sold it. And we saw one of the chests that was used there in Wittenberg when we were, they have it at the museum, you know, and the hole that the coin goes in. Number 28, it's certainly possible, are you ready for this? This is humorous. It is certainly possible that when the money clinks in the bottom of the chest, avarice and greed increase. <laughs> but when the church offers intercession, all depends in the will of God. I just love the way Luther pokes and jabs. He's like Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, you know, stinging. You know, all through this. Number 30, no one is sure if the reality of his own contrition, nobody's certain of the reality of his own repentance. Okay, you all with me? You all with me? We ourselves aren't even sure of the genuineness of our own repentance, much less of receiving plenary forgiveness. In other words, if we're not sure ourselves of what our commitment to God is when we repent and how sincere it is, how on earth are the people at the church able to say, without any fear of contradiction, that you have a plenary indulgence, you know? Number 32, all those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation by means of letters of indulgence will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Are you all with me? And people are upset that John MacArthur told that woman to go home? Thank goodness Martin Luther isn't around. Imagine what Luther would have said. All right, I'm back. I never can remember her name, so it's not because I'm being rude. I... Oh, Beth Moore. Okay, Beth Moore. Number 39. It is very difficult, even for the most learned theologians, to extol to the people the great bounty contained in the indulgences, while at the same time praising contrition as a virtue. In other words, come on, dude, you're going to build up indulgences and then at the same time build up somebody feeling sorry for their sin? In other words, the two are mutually antithetical. You see this? One is mechanical and the other is of the heart. Okay. Number 40, a truly contrite sinner, in other words, a sinner who really is sorry for his sins, seeks out and loves to pay the penalties of his sins. Now, some of you right now know exactly what that means. Whereas the very multitude of indulgences dulls men's consciences and tends to make them hate the penalties. 
What a good point. Now, 42 Christians should be taught. 43 Christians should be taught. 45 Christians should be taught. 46 Christians should be taught. 47 Christians should be taught. 48 Christians should be taught that in granting indulgences, the Pope has more need and more desire for devout prayer on his own behalf than for ready money. Sting like a bee. Number 49, Christians should be taught. Number 50, Christians should be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgence preachers, he would rather the church of St. Peter were reduced to ashes than be built with the skin, flesh, and bones of the sheep. Oh, you never knew St. Peter's was in the indulgences, did you? I mean, in the 95 Theses. Ain't that interesting? Number 51, Christians should be taught that the Pope would be willing, as he ought, if necessity should arise, to sell the church of St. Peter and give to his own money to many of those whom the pardon merchants conjure money. In other words, look, if this is a real deal of indulgent sales and it does give forgiveness, the Pope should sell St. Peter's and then he should give all his own money to buy people out of purgatory and to get their sins forgiven. Number 62, the true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. Oh, can we, can I get a, can I get a, yes. Number 66, the treasures of the indulgences are the nets today which they use to fish for men of wealth. (laughs) Excuse me, I get a kick out of this. All right, number 82, I'm skipping a lot, right? They ask, for instance, why doesn't the Pope liberate everyone from purgatory for the sake of love, which is a holy thing? And because of the supreme necessity of their souls, this would be morally the best of all reasons. Meanwhile, he redeems innumerable souls for money, a most perishable thing, with which to build St. Peter's Church, a very minor purpose. Now, guys, do you know why I started the sermon the way I did? Okay, come on. Remember Pink Floyd. Money, it's a hit. Don't give me that goody good. Good. No, the rest of you don't know, but there are enough here that do. (laughs) All right, I'm coming to the end. Number 86. Again, since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, why does he not build this one church of St. Peter with his own money? Rather than with the money of poor believers? All right, and then I'm going to read you the last four, okay? 92nd through 95th. 92. Away then with those prophets who say to Christ's people, peace, peace, where there is no peace. 93, hail, hail to all those prophets who say to Christ's people, the cross, the cross, where there is no cross. 
94, Christians should be exhorted to be zealous to follow Christ their head through penalties, deaths, and hells. And 95, and let them thus be more confident of entering heaven through many tribulations rather than through a false assurance of peace. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking this is not a sermon because where's the word of God? All right, here's the word of God. You ready? This is just one of many places I could have read to you from Scripture, but this is Acts 14, verses 1 to 7. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. Now, this time, Anne, when, I, when I ask you, are you ready to say it? Okay. So, well, who are the Jews? The people of God. Okay, they're the people of God. In Iconium, they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue of the people of God together, the Jews, and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believe. They believe the gospel. Both of Jews and of Greeks, Gentiles and Jews together believed. But, this is the first of two buts in the text, But the Jews who disbelieve, in other words, the people of God who disbelieved, all right, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. They stirred them up and they embittered them. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. Listen, that is the very opposite of us in the church today. Where we meet resistance, we think we've failed somehow and sinned. And so we leave the scene of the accident, and we get more wussy than we were before we opened our mouth. But that's the very opposite of what they did. They doubled down. They stayed. I didn't say this in the first service, but would you all understand me if I told you that from the time that I had a restraining order filed on me by Charlotte Sitlow in this community, I have wanted to leave Bloomington. And my wife hasn't let me. Come on. All of us want to leave when we have the kind of embittering against us that they suffered. And none of us want to become more bold It's demoralizing to relentlessly have people lying about you. And everywhere you go, you feel like what Jay Lee called me once, Rob Hooper and me, is, you know, talking to the owner of the limestone quarry, you know, Indiana Limestone. He was trying to get him to give us uh, land on the east side of Bloomington, you know. And he was explaining to him, "Now, now these men are really men of God. We were sitting there, you know. It was awkward. And he says, do you know what they've given for this church and for the work of God in this community? He said, these two men have become pyreas in this community. (laughs) And my mind began to turn. And I thought, whoa, if ever a word needed to be coined, it was that word. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Pink Floyd and that, I'll leave it right there, you know. (laughs) 
I will tell you that one of the words he was messing up was pariah. All right. <laughs> okay, we're back. <laughs> and so you think about yourself and your family, and you think about going to family reunions, or you think about how you're divisive in your family reunions. You don't even have to open your mouth. It's precisely there that souls are saved. There is no way for souls to be saved without you being in the wine press. It can't happen. Let me read to you the rest of this and then another scripture, and then I'll say something and be done. Uh, Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. Will you please remember that? They spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. How else can you do it except relying on the Lord? Who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But, I said twice it'll come up, but the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Jews and the, the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them. They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Listen, we we perpetually lay garlands on the tombs of the dead prophets. This is the reason Calvin didn't let anybody know where he was buried. Because he said, they did not like me, and they did not respect me during my lifetime, and I'll be hanged if they're going to put memorials on my grave. (laughs) And so nobody knows where Calvin's buried. Remember what Jesus said. You know, you make such a show out of your honor of the prophets. Listen, Luther hung by a thread year after year after year. And it was God's church, God's people, God's church officers who were constantly trying to silence him. And so who are you going to be and who is this church going to be? Who are we going to be? You might say, well, you know, we're going to be a witness to the truth. And I say, you think it's possible to be sanctified yourself without there being a battle? And you say, well, myself, yeah. I say, oh, yeah, so you don't remember those internal arguments you have when it comes time for you to repent. Do you remember them? You remember how divided you are between the the part of you that wants to repent and the part of you that don't? And then what about a wife and a husband? A wife and a husband talk to each other, and the husband or the wife points out sin in the other person, and the two are one. Isn't that sweet? And you wouldn't believe how intense the argument and the fight can be. And then you think about a family. If it's hard for you to repent, hard for you and your wife to repent, how hard is it for you to call your children to repentance? It's incredibly difficult. Why? Well, we don't want to be rejected by our children. And then, what about a church? What happens when a church, half of the church wants to repent and the other half doesn't? 
And then it's all of Christendom. All of Christendom was being divided by the reformers. And what was at stake was St. Peter's. And so what we do is, as we feel the constriction of the boa constrictor of American culture, which we're all feeling, post-Obergefell especially, you all with me, as we feel the constriction, what we say to ourselves is, we better find better places to stand that won't bring down us the wrath of the elite quite as quickly. And so the church today is awash in celebrity Christians who are designing systems whereby we can appear to be faithful to God, but escape some of the nastier persecution. And now churches are dividing because some churches are going along with the compromises and equivocations, and some churches aren't. And the churches going along with it are looking at the churches that aren't going along with it, and they're saying, they're so graceless. They're so divisive. And so we think, oh man, please, can we not have people embittered against us? I don't like my mama being embittered. I don't like my children. I don't like my children's friends at Lighthouse. You know, can we please have an existence that keeps other Christians at Lighthouse from disliking us, please? Second Corinthians 2, beginning with verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. The sweet aroma. And listen, we all know that that aroma is everywhere in this church. It is. Any of you know the story of Maddie? I mean, that's drop dead. That's better than any of them, uh, what do they call them there things? Uh, Essence, what's it called? Huh? Essential oils, yeah. Yeah, essential oils. And listen, it is true that across this church, we have essential oils that are unbelievably smelly in a good way. No, I'm absolutely serious. I mean, I look around at you, and I think about what I see as I greet in the door of this church as as you leave. And I'm not fake when I say to you, oh, this makes me happy, this makes me, oh, that's so sweet. And I just see that all the time with you guys. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet smell of the knowledge of him in every place. So we're all, we're all okay with this, right? And this is what it says next. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then it says, to the one, an aroma of death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? You cannot possibly be the aroma of life to life and, and pull people to Jesus Christ to experience the mercy and grace that you have been received that you have received yourself without being the smell of death to those who are perishing. It is impossible. 
It has always been the case that the church is growing when the church is persecuted. That's why from the early church on, they say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You say, well, you're not a martyr. I say, yeah, you are. It's just that it hasn't come to the end. It hasn't come to death. And you say, yeah, but what I wish is that the persecution wouldn't come from other Christians. And I say, it's always been that way. That's why I had Daniel say, the Jews are the people of God. It was God's people. It was the officers of Christ's church who persecuted the early church. In the early church, you can see the persecution move from being from outside the church to being inside the church. And that's largely the story of all the epistles of the New Testament, is dealing with the persecution that has come within the church. And from the time I was at UW-Madison where I would watch everybody that came to preach publicly at Library Mall. I have seen that the greatest pain caused by Christians, caused to Christians, always comes from other Christians. It's just the way God's ordained it. And so listen... Can we all agree that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And can we please agree that the gospel of Jesus Christ starts with your sexuality? You can't hop, skip, and jump over being a man and a woman and be a Christian. You can't repent without repenting sexually. You can't be sanctified without having your sexuality sanctified. And here's an idea. If the entire world is focused on getting you to be a Christian without being a man, without being a woman, then that better be the place that the reform of the church focuses today. Can anybody in this place, whether you're sympathetic to me or not, Deny that the focus of the world's attack upon God today is sexuality. And so here's an idea. If Martin Luther and Calvin and Knox and all of them never stopped attacking the mass, because the mass was the very center of that scholastic scheme of merit, and they call it idolatrous again and again and again and again and again. If they were writing a, a, a treatise on Dick and Jane, see Jane run, it would be, and the mass is idolatrous. See Jane run, the mass is idolatrous. That's honestly, if you read the reformers, that's what it's like reading them. You know? <laughs> you know? And he said, I have come seeking my father's donkeys, and behold, I have found, and the mass is idolatrous. I kid you not. Any of you that have read the Reformers, you know I'm telling you the truth. That's because the people's souls were at stake with the Mass. Your souls are at stake with your sexuality. And so, if you like Luther, just be glad he isn't here today preaching. Because if you think I have a one-track mind, you have no idea about Martin Luther. Now, one last thing that will be endearing to you. So last Sunday at the Lord's Supper, right? You know, I was talking about how Christ is present 
in the bread and the wine. And I said, remember, you know, it was scandalous when Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood. So I was trying to make the case that he is here and that he will work through these elements to heal us, to forgive us. And, 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 and then I said, and you know, I, you remember what I said. I said, I mean, okay, fine. If you believe in transubstantiation, that, fine. You know, you, you come ahead, right? And to me, it was just a throw-off line, you know? And then... Everybody was left, and I saw Eric way over in the corner writing on his laptop. And I thought, what on earth is he writing? So I went over and sat down, or, and I said, Eric, what are you doing? <laughs> you want to tell him? <laughs> he said, well, actually, I'm writing you a letter, an email. I said, really, what about? I was still chipper, you know? And he said, well... And you could tell it pained him to say this, but he said, well, actually, I think you were blasphemous in what you said this morning. When Eric uses the word blasphemous, can we all agree that he probably knows what the word means? And so I said, really, why? And he said, well, do you remember what you said about transubstantiation? Listen, these are no joking matters. When God's people are told that to come to the Mass earns them merit, the more times, the more merit. They use indulgences. It is the merchandising of souls. And here I am, a Presbyterian minister, in a very stupid, foolish, sinful way, saying, eh, if you believe in... No. And so I'm sorry. Eric is right. I should never have said that. And so I ask you to pray for my mouth. Seriously. It's not the first time this week it got me in trouble. Yeah. So listen, people. The church reformed semper reformanda, which means what? Always reforming. Everybody reforming except Pastor Bailey? No. Everybody reforming but you? What's sauce for the gander, sauce for the goose, or whatever way that works. Our elders, our deacons, our older women, the people that teach, the people that preach, the people that serve, the young, the old, and even the Jews. And even the South Africans, or whatever you are, I don't know what you are. We all repent, and we don't mind being the stench of death to those who are perishing, because why? Because we are the smell of Jesus Christ to those who are being saved. If you want to be used by God, you have to resign yourself to being the smell of death to those with hard hearts. You say, oh, but they're Christians. I say, you ready? It's a sophisticated thing I'm going to say. You say, oh, but they're Christians. I say, duh. They're always Christians. Because what they've done is they've come up with a scheme where they could stop repenting and have a seared conscience. And you better get used to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Martin Luther, your servant. We thank you for Melanchthon, who strengthened him. We thank you for Frederick, the elector, who protected them.
we thank you for the castle of Wartburg. Father, we thank you for Gutenberg and his printing press. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and for John the Baptist and for Amos and Hosea. We thank you for righteous Noah. Father, would you please continue to send us prophets? And would you please keep us from punishing them? May, may we all honor the prophet so that we too may receive the prophet's reward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.